Good morning from California. I am Francisque Savignan, the founder and CEO of Epar Trade. Uh, with me is Judy Kin, the co-founder. Good morning, Judy. Good morning. Good morning, and Brad. Brad Gilly, our wonderful host. Good morning, Brad. Welcome back. Good morning to both of you as well. Excellent. So this uh, episode today is a very special one for me um, because we're bringing my very, very dear friend, Yves Morizot. Uh, Yves Morizot is the founder uh, of Stand 21, and I was extremely lucky in life to meet with Yves about 25 years ago. And if I had not met Yves, my career in motorsport would have been a lot different. So I am delighted to bring Yves uh, to this webinar. And yeah, let's uh, not forget, we are very honored to also have Dr. Terry Tremel and Doug Behan joining us today as well. Absolutely. I mean, two wonderful people, uh, you know, big industry players with a tremendous uh, uh, history in the sport. So I am getting a signal from a producer, Reed Keneski. I see uh, Eve uh, uh, Morizot here. I see Doug. We're going to ask them to start their video and to start their mic. And Don Taylor is here as well. And uh, good morning, Doug. I think you might have to start your uh, sound. Okay, ask to unmute. How about, how about we unmute to begin? Yes, absolutely. I think- I know my, I know my management likes that button to stay on with me. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. Bonsoir, Yves. Bonsoir. Bonsoir, messieurs. <laughs> so Don Taylor is on, Terry is on, Doug is on. So Brad Gilly, you in charge, will let you uh, take over for the next uh, hour and we'll see you guys in about 55, 58 minutes. Thank you, Francis. Appreciate that a whole lot and uh, really appreciate all of our presenters who are joining us here today. This is going to be a lot of fun here over the next hour. And if this is your first time joining us for one of our Race Industry Now webinars, then uh, basically the way this goes is we'll talk about um, uh, what our topic of the day is, which is heat stress lessons from Corvette drivers at Le Mans. Uh, we have four presenters, which is, um, you know, usually one or two more than what we normally have, which is fantastic because it means we're going to cover a lot of ground here today. But we're also going to welcome your input and your questions as well. And uh, I'll introduce each one of our presenters. We'll let them talk. We'll answer questions along the way and just have a great hour here talking about safety and everything else. And again, uh, the people who are joining us here today, uh, we have Doug Fian, the former Corvette racing manager, Dr. Terry Trammell, of course, uh, in open wheel racing in Indianapolis and Champ Car, um, certainly well known in safety and in the racing industry. Eve Morzo, uh, president of Stand 21, and Don Taylor, the director of Stand 21 Safety Foundation. And Eve, I want to start with you because you're joining us all the way from France today, which is fantastic. We really appreciate that. Um, let's let you get it started. Tell us a little bit about Stand 21 and what we're talking about today. And again, heat stress lessons from Corvette drivers at Le Mans. Eve? Yeah, first I'll start by telling hello to Terry, hello to Doug, to Don, and hello to, to Francisc, and John, Judy, and you, Brad. Uh, I'm in France because I cannot travel to America. All of you, you know, I love your country. I spend a lot of, of time in your country. We have a business in the West Coast. And um, I want to tell, my, my company is 50 years old. And 50 years ago, it was no safety around the world, close to no safety. It was a time when, when Jimmy, Jackie Stewart was telling, sex is safe and racing was dangerous. Now, it's exactly the opposite. Sex is no more safe. But is a lot more safe because big people around the table. When I started the racing, it was no standard. It was close to no company except Simpson in America. And I start with uh, a very small company because it was no standard, no standard. Uh, Formula One racer was wearing my equipment just because they believe in me. And uh, I'm so happy 20 years ago, 18 years ago, when I start to do the foundation for, for you, with you in America, and with the help of Terry, with the help of Don, Steve Albert, John Melvin, we start something. I think it's like a dream for a French guy like me. Because I was with the, the top of the world people, and they were so simple, so nice. A lot of you came, they came to my home, and we spent time to go there. 
we play golf together, we have, yes, I enjoy my life because we try to bring more safety in racing. And that's exactly a big dream. And now I'm 75, I'm no more a young rooster, but I still love what I'm doing and I love to do. I will see you, I hope, in Long Beach Grand Prix because we will do a seminar over there in September. Uh, I hope we will go out with those, this, this uh, COVID-19. I hope it will not be a 20, 21, I'm sure no, because 21 is my number. COVID will not take. And uh, thank you to all of you. Thank you to more times. You are my body. You, not my body. You are with me because you believe you did so much, so much in safety. I really I remember see the, the movies with Steve, you know, when you, you, you were helping uh, uh, the, the driver in Indianapolis, all that, you know, it's so incredible what you did in your life. Thank you to all of you. Now I let you talk. And thank you, Doug, because you are the first man in Le Mans who don't, I don't have to explain him his stress. He explained me his stress. That's wonderful. Eve, thank you. And uh, thank you for joining us here uh, from France and for the contribution of Stan 21, certainly. And congratulations on 50 years and, you know, look forward to 50 more and beyond. So that's fantastic. And you are all American people. You are my guest when you come to, if you come to Europe, come to our factory where we manufacture. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Uh, Don, I have good wine. Oh, okay. Well, then, then you know what? As soon as we can, we'll be over there then. How about that? <laughs> I like that. Uh, Don Taylor, the director of the Stand 21 Safety Foundation, racinggosafer.org is where you can find out more about that. And Don, if you would give us a little bit of an overview about some of the topics that we're going to be talking about today with Doug and with Terry and uh, answering questions on the chat and all of that. Yeah. Hey, good morning. Morning, Brad. I uh, just want to add here that uh, Eve's got a sign behind him that says 50 years. Uh, the company, Stan 21, is pretty unique in that Eve has run this family-owned business with him and now his son, Roma, um, for 50 years, celebrated sometime, sometime during the COVID year. I'm not sure when exactly. And Eve's actually working on a book on his uh, memory there. But the foundation itself, Eve created this 10 years ago in order to give back to the sport and uh, help educate racers about, about safety. So here we are. Uh, one can go to um, racinggosafer.org to our website for more information. Uh, but as far as today, you're two guys in motorsports and safety who are, who are legends and uh, I wanna turn it right over to them. Terry is the one who has repaired so many drivers. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm talking Rick Mirza. Jim Crawford, Tommy Kindle, and on and on. But he's also spent a lot of time in trying to prevent injuries and, and uh, improving safety medical response at the track and changing the rules. He's <clears throat> spent many hours at the Speedway, many hours campaigning for, for better safety. So we'll hear a little bit about what he has to say today about heat stress and perhaps fire. And then Doug, uh, known Doug for maybe 30 years now. And Doug is so instrumental in the Corvette racing program, getting Corvette back into international racing and international competition. And they, they went to uh, Le Mans for the first time. I think Jim was there in the early 50s or a semi-factory effort with Corvette. But they went there some 20 some years ago uh, and learned a whole lot along the way. And Doug's gonna share with us what, what they learned about that experience. So let's turn it right over to them. Brad, go ahead. Okay, well, that, that sounds wonderful. Well, we're talking about Doug right now. So we'll uh, go ahead and start with you, Doug, uh, if you would. And I know you've got some great stories to share and a lot of experience as well. And it's always fascinating to me. Um, you know, I was talking to, uh, to Don yesterday and basically saying, you know, in my experience in racing and selling race cars and race car parts and all of that, I always told people, you know, first money should be spent on safety, then worry about making your race car go fast. And I think one thing that's great about our industry is the fact that when it comes to safety, I think everyone in our industry is very proud of how safe the industry is. And I also think sometimes we take things for granted, um, you know, just because we see people walk away from wrecks and we see a lot of different things happen, but it's even more than just that. And as we're talking about heat stress here today, um, you know, Doug, your experience throughout the years, especially with endurance racing and everything that you've done, um, you know, tell us about, um, you know, what you can and maybe share some stories if you would. 
Well, you know, going back to what, what Eve said, when we look at, uh, at really the, the history of safety, um, when I first started uh, racing, I mean, it was uh, T-shirts, Levi's. Uh, they did have helmets, uh, but guys were smoking in the cars while they were racing. I mean, that, that, that's, the, that's the void that existed. Um, and the industry, to its credit, uh, always seemed to react to catastrophe. When one thing would happen that would cause disaster, then that would be addressed. And, and you've watched that happen from, from the helmet development to uh, uh, chassis development to safer barrier uh, and obviously uh, fire and heat, which we're discussing today. Um, so it was paramount to me and all the things that I had witnessed early on in my career when there literally was no safety. Uh, I wanted to implement a, a philosophy in Corvette racing that was indeed uh, safety first. Um, we built our first uh, racing Corvette back in probably 1988-89. We got that car done, all right? And uh, I, I, I issued an order that said we were gonna take that immediately to Milford and crash test it. Car had not turned a lap, all right? And we had spent over a year building it and we took it to Milford to crash test it. My bosses were just, were, were I mean, they had a difficult time accepting why I wanted to do this, but I'm, I, I explained to them why, that in the future, as we go down, and, 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 and I saw this program as having legs and having the ability to go for a long time, that safety was going to be paramount. So they approved my request, and we went and we crash tested that brand new GT car, and all the things that we had designed in proved to be very, very effective. And I can tell you this, you only have to look at videos throughout the years and look at some of the tremendous crashes and impacts that that car has endured. Uh, we've never lost a car to, to an accident. And we've been in some of the most horrific crashes in, uh, in, in uh, GT racing history. Drivers have always emerged safely. So I feel very proud of having instituted that foundation from what we built, uh, we built uh, our first vehicle. And from there, we went on with a side impact box, uh, which we still use today. Uh, we incorporated using some of our NASCAR, and Terry was involved in some of this, some of our NASCAR learnings with our side safety nets, both driver side and interior side. That was not required. We introduced that into sports car racing. Uh, helmets in pit lane, we were the first to use those. Uh, and, and that was voluntary, all right? We just did that because we knew it was the right thing to do. So the foundation of Corvette racing has always been safety-based. I think my personal experience with, with heat, other than short term of being a driver myself and, and knowing in front engine cars how damn hot they are. Um, back in 1986, I uh, was doing some Trans Am work and uh, Formula One was in Detroit at that time and Trans Am was racing. And uh, we had a, a relatively warm, sunny, early summer day. The, the outside temperature was not that great. However, in the car we were racing, Chris Neifel was driving uh, and it developed an exhaust leak. And uh, Chris reported that on the radio, that he was feeling some heat uh, on the floorboard and that it was uh, growing greater and greater. And of course we asked, well, you know, can you manage it? We didn't think anything about it. Oh yeah, yeah, don't worry, I, I, I got it under control. Well, let me tell you what, that race finished, he got out of the car and had second and third degree burns, all right, on his right foot. That would to look at the extent of that injury, and Terry knows where a third degree burn is. I mean, you're 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 down into tissue with that thing. What, what, what it took him over three months to recover from that to be able to walk. Um, it was a, a terrifically uh, just a terrible, terrible incident. But what I learned from that was the drivers aren't often the most accurate source of information, not all of them, but some of them will drive through anything to the point of doing themselves bodily harm. Their dedicated to mission uh, is so strong that they're not willing to give up. And so that, that taught me that, you know, we needed, to, we needed to delve deeper in instructing our drivers before they got into cars. We also had to look at various, in various indications with instrumentation in the car that could, that could independently tell us what was going on uh, in there. Um, I, I felt I, I, I was, I was really bothered by the fact that, that, that Chris would drive through that. I understood it and it was a proud moment for him, I know, finishing that race. But nonetheless, uh, with, with safety in mind, we had, to, we had to do things to improve all aspects of safety. 
Fast forwarding to Lamar, our first year was uh, 2000. And it was a, uh, it, it can get warm, as Eve knows, it can get warm in Lamar. And we had a warm day. And Lamar is kind of unique. And it was the first time for me that we had ever raced a uh, fully enclosed race car with the aero benefits and efficiencies and advantages of putting windows in the car. It was a couple miles an hour down Mulsanne Strait. Well, obviously, when you do that, you take away a lot of natural ambient ventilation of the cockpit, okay? And uh, those inter interior temperatures are, are going to be on the rise. We had little ducts built into the windows themselves uh, with, you know, the flexible cooling duct, you know, pretty much Fred Flintstone air conditioning, if you will, um, that we used. And it seemed to be reasonably effective in all our testing. However, on this day, the heat was far more intense than anything we had tested before. And uh, long story short, uh, late in, well, it was actually around noon, Justin Bell was driving at the time. Uh, we were finishing up his last stint. Uh, he reported all along that it was hot inside the car and that was, he was feeling, he was feeling the heat. Um, we noticed that there was a, 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 a very linear degradation of lap times, uh, in his level and ability to perform, uh, with about two laps and keep mile, these are eight and a half mile laps and they take over at that point in time, they took a little over four minutes. Um, he was reporting himself feeling ill, lightheaded, woozy. Uh, we instructed him, you know, immediately come in. No, 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 I can finish. I can finish. Well, he did finish. He managed to get the car pulled into pit lane, got the car stopped and passed out behind the wheel. It took three of us to drag him out through the window because he was unconscious. All right. Revived him immediately. You know, hour later, he was fine. Uh, but there's another example of, of what he can do, you know, we had an indicator of what was happening. Uh, we had a driver report of what was happening, but right once again, the driver was taking it right to the limit. Um, that caused us to begin to think about, you know, a better way to create a, a safer and higher performing environment for our drivers. Obviously, air conditioning uh, came to mind. I mean, that would be the first thing you would think of. But in those days, air conditioning was a heard of in race cars. I mean, it, it, it didn't exist. Um, and of course, there was huge pushback from our engineering team who didn't want to add the weight, uh, didn't want to take away the horsepower from the engine. You know, it's in those days, it was somewhere between five and 10 horsepower to run a big compressor and, and uh, pump all the, the, uh, the coolant through the condensing coil and evaporative coils and fans and I mean, it was, you know, they were looking, oh my goodness, it's going to be, you know, almost 30 pounds of equipment and, you know, 10 horsepower. And that's going to equate to, you know, 1.6 mile an hour slower down Mulsanne. Um, so our staff went to work on a piezoelectric unit, which is a, which is a, 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 a science that involves electrical cooling with no moving parts. And I don't want to get into the science of it because I'm not that well versed in it, but two different currents through two different materials, heat is taken away from run. It causes a cooling effect. You can then take a fan and blow that cooling effect. Well, we developed, took us a couple of years, but we developed a piezoelectric small cooler that delivered ventilated air into the driver's helmet. And it weighed eh, maybe three pounds. So we met the requirement of the engineering staff. We, it wasn't, I mean, this wasn't, chilling cold, but it was cooler air. And we were able to still run an enclosed car. Lo and behold, that very year, which was, oh, I don't know, maybe 2004, was a brutally hot day in Le Mans. And I think uh, it was either Ferrari 550, it was ProDrive, it was either Ferrari 550 or their first year there with, uh, with, the, uh, with the Aston Martin. But they, they were quick. They had an enclosed car. They were our major competition that year. And by the time we got to about hour 18, their drivers all, and they had four drivers, I believe, in, in, in those cars because they knew it was going to be hot. Um, all four of them had become ill. And it was very, very questionable whether they even have enough driving team, driving force to be able to finish that race. Our guys went on, no issues. I mean, hot. But, but, but no heat stress, uh, just that little bit of piezoelectric cooling gave us the advantage. We ended up winning that race. I mean, Aston Martin went in and, and, and during a pit stop actually cut the window out of the car 
to try and, and, and get some ambient cooling in there to, to, to help their driver issues. It was, uh, it was at that point in time that we really got serious about, about driver environment, driver safety, and, and heat stress. I mean, you know, the, the engineers had seen what had happened. Uh, they knew we had a little advantage with Piso. Uh, but they know that, that, that ultimately we were going to have to do something and that we were going to have to bite the bullet, you know, find another 10 horsepower and, and take 10 pounds out of the car someplace else. We were going to have to involve ourselves in developing air conditioning. It was at that point in time that I began my conversation with Eve, who I'd gotten to know through our relationship at Stan 21. And I knew he had a, uh, you know, a, a mindset that, uh, that, that safety was of paramount importance in all of motorsport. And uh, he arranged a meeting while we were at Le Mans with uh, Valio, and uh, you remember that Eve, and the FIA and the ATO, and I went on to discuss the lessons I had learned uh, and, and saw a need that uh, we needed to begin to explore uh, air conditioning in these cars mm -hmm. if we were going to continue to race them in an enclosed uh, environment like we had been doing. Uh, Valio was invaluable in some of the research they had because they actually manufactured uh, compressors. The automobile manufacturers themselves for passenger cars were looking for smaller, lighter, more efficient componentry. Our, our goals and objectives were the same from a passenger car to a race car, lightweight, high performance, low cost. Um, and so that began, uh, that began our research. We developed a unit um, that worked really well. And uh, that following year, uh, ACO uh, implemented the rule that air conditioning was going to be a requirement. So that was a huge step forward, I think, in, in driver safety and in cooling. Um, yeah, from that point on, uh, you know, we now have uh, monitoring inside the car. Uh, we, we at Corvette Racing developed a system uh, that develop, that delivers AC to three areas. Number one, into the actual cockpit of the car. Uh, number two, uh, into the driver's helmet. And number three, we developed and homologated a hollow clamshell seat with a ven ventilated back, all right? That actually positively charges that clamshell and forces cool air up and down the driver's back. Now, when we got to that point, we, can, we were continuing our relationship with Eve, and Eve began to search out and develop new fabrics for driver suits. You know, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive when you, when you bundle a guy in, in long underwear and a snowmobile suit and then complain about him being too warm in the car, okay? So, you know, that was another mountain to climb. So Eve went to work on that and developed, his initial fabric was, was incredible. I mean, it was, I looked at it and said, how can this, this looks, it was lightweight. The fabric was a loose weave fabric. Air passed through it from the driver outward and inward quite easily. It probably was maybe two thirds the weight of a normal suit. I mean, this was, this was a, a, a miracle fabric. And when the drivers put that on, we did some testing with it. The drivers put that on, sat in that clamshell seat. Now suddenly that cool air was moving right all over their body. It was a huge step forward. And that was only stage one in the material. Uh, we've had two or three additional uh, uh, advances in the material in those Stan 21 suits. Um, uh, drivers are, are, are all in on, on using them and still providing you with, with the same degree, if not improved degree of, of fire protection uh, in, in the race car itself. I think that that those two things, the air conditioning and that fabric development is really the two largest steps forward that, uh, that, that we've taken in, in developing uh, new safety protocols for, for, for what we institute in our cars and, and drive our cars. Um, we continue to work, obviously, on the efficiencies of our system. Uh, you know, we, we, we've now developed a rear engine car, so that's a whole other plumbing dynamic that we have to deal with. But we go right back to that same delivery system, the hollow core seat, the driver helmet, you know, if you can get a driver, and, and I think Terry will tell you this, it may not be the most efficient way, but if you can get a driver to breathe in cooler air, uh, all the blood in your body passes through your lungs. That's how it's oxygenated. And uh, obviously, if you, can, if you can cool the interior of the lung, that assists in it. Obviously, keeping the driver's head cool, I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of the body heat, a large percentage of body heat is emitted through the head itself. Um, and then obviously, the cockpit 
uh, just to keep a more pleasant environment. So uh, it, it's been a, it's been a long road. It's been an enjoyable road, but I think the thing that's it's it, most of all it's been a rewarding road because at each step of the way we improve the situation and driver performance um, can easily be measured. Quite frankly, can easily be measured uh, in, in conjunction with with what the heat stress elements are. Uh, currently, we have a program ongoing with Michigan State University. Uh, we have a doctoral student uh, who's assigned to our team who's doing his thesis on heat stress and in uh, various methodology on, on how you test for that, how you monitor that. Um, we've, done, we've done testing where the drivers actually swallow a pill that measures their internal body temperature. So we can monitor that inside the car, obviously heart rate. Uh, perspiration, weighing the drivers before they go in the car, weighing the drivers when they come out of the car to see how much liquid that, that they're actually losing during the stint. So that study continues. We know there's areas yet to improve on. We continue our relationship with Stan 21, working on, uh, on uh, helmet materials that are a little bit cooler, a little bit lighter, working on our driver suit materials. It's, uh, you know, racing, as I tell my, my, my bosses all the time, is a lot more than a checkered flag and a trophy. And I think the people that are involved here today go a long way to uh, testify to that. That that is very well said, uh, for sure. And, and let's bring in Dr. Terry Trammell. And uh, I know throughout the racing industry, uh, you know, Dr. Trammell, you're either directly known or certainly well known throughout the industry. But for, for those who may not know, and I just want to make sure that we cover all of what you do and what you have done, and, and literally just read from your bio here, um, Dr. Terry Trammell, MD, is an orthopedic surgery specialist in Indianapolis. Terry has served as the orthopedic consultant to Indianapolis Motor Speedway from 1981 to 95, was involved with CART Medical Services from 84 to 2008. Uh, his interest in motorsports safety research has led to the implementation of many of today's safety innovations. Dr. Trammell is a founding member of the FIA Institute for Motorsport Safety and a consultant to many international motorsport organizations. Dr. Trammell, as we talk about heat, you know, it's interesting here as well uh, in listening to Doug just simply talking about different forms of heat in the race car. You know, we, we, some people think of heat and instantly think of fire. Well, I've got a fire suit. Depending on what type of car you drive, maybe you have heat coming up from the floorboard. Depending on which way the exhaust are routed, you might have even more heat that you need to protect your feet from or you might need to protect your, your tail from if you're sitting in an aluminum seat that's not, you know, properly, uh, you know, equipped to be able to, uh, you know, get rid of a lot or some cars like nascar now at indianapolis motor speedway even for example are so sealed to the racetrack that no air goes underneath them and now all of a sudden the cockpit is even hotter than what it once was before but dr trammell if you could talk about that because you know with every different type of heat we're dealing with um, there is a different type of solution as doug was just talking about as well okay well first of all doug covered all the waterfront uh, pretty well in terms of what can happen and uh, how to measures that have been taken to prevent it. I'm, I'm gonna be a little bit professorial and try and explain why. Nice, the nice part about human anatomy and physiology is they haven't changed since God was a baby. Uh, so we're dealing with the same um, program and you'll be surprised to see that this is not a new topic. Um, can, we, can I use my share screen and show you some slides here? Uh, Figure this out here. Uh, wake up here. There we go. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about um, what was referred to earlier as what role the fire suit plays in all this. But in, in order to understand that, you have to understand why there is a problem and what it does to you. Um, this is just the, the usual disclosure. We're gonna talk about heat illness, which is in motorsports referred to as heat stress. Uh, it's really largely unrecognized across the racing spectrum, uh, all but at the most elite levels, uh, like Le Mans and the Corvette uh, teams. It uh, degrades performance without a doubt, as uh, Doug explained to you, and it can result in severe illness, even death, the driver that passed out on the steering wheel. Um, that this is not new. Many of you know who Professor Sid Watkins uh, was. He was the medical principal for the uh, F1 series for FIA, really for 
40 years. Uh, this is his medical school thesis to get his MD degree um, written in 1956. And it establishes the degradation of manual and cognitive skills with increasing core temperature. It's, a, it's an extremely well-written document, um, but nothing that's in that has changed since 1956. Um, the solutions are more inventive, but the physiology hasn't changed. So what happens, um, what, what is it? What is heat stress? Well, it's heat production um, that accumulates in the body and exceeds the body's ability to regulate the core temperature by dissipating that heat. Uh, failure to dissipate the heat load results in increased core temperature, which causes problems. Um, heat illness occurs when the body can't dissipate that heat. It comes in a number of syndromes uh, that, are, that are heat illness. The first thing is, is cramps and heat syncope. And I'm sure the drivers recognize you've driven on a hot day, you go to get out of the car and you can't stand up. And the first thing you do is sit down and lean against the pit wall uh, until you kind of equilibrate, drink two or three bottles of water and hope that you get your legs under you so you can get back up. That's at the lowest level. The next is the heat exhaustion, which is your driver that passed out on the steering wheel. Um, they're just, they're totally physically and physiologically exhausted. If that goes on, it can result in uh, changes in brain function that's uh, called heat stroke, and that can leave you with permanent injury to the brain. Okay, when this occurs, I'm gonna keep going and repeating myself. The, when the sum of the environmental heat load and the metabolic heat load exceed the body's capacity for heat dissipation, that's heat illness. That's when heat illness occurs. Now, one of the things that uh, can occur with this is that you're gonna get to the part where you have to understand where that heat load is coming from. The environmental heat load is obvious. It's the ambient temperature, it's the relative humidity, it's the radiant heat with the engine, the floorboard, the drivetrain, um, airflow or not through the car. And then of course, what you're wearing, the color, the texture, the fabric, specific factors and the layering. Uh, what metabolic heat load is, is it's mechanical work that your muscles are doing and that generates heat. So when a human does work, muscles supply the energy. The energy comes from chemical reactions at the cellular level. That energy is incompletely converted to work and muscular work produces heat. This is an example of somebody doing a lot of muscular work in a very um, perilous position, uh, showing off doing overhand chin-ups on a ledge that has a mild drop-off underneath it. So heart rate goes up, anxiety goes up, and you're doing work. Well, that metabolic heat load um, is what you do when you do exercise. So it requires 20 times more muscular energy to perform exercise than it does to just sit and do nothing. 75% of that energy is converted to heat. The human body is not a very efficient uh, machine. It gives off a lot of heat when it works. Racing is a physical activity. Sp specifically, an Indy car does not have power steering or power brakes. And driving one of those things on a road course is exhausting under the best conditions. A city street course is driving in a concrete canyon and if the temperature and the humidity are high, they're gonna be highest between those concrete walls where there's very little airflow. All right, heat stress occurs when the environmental heat load and the metabolic heat load is greater than the body's ability to maintain a stable core temperature. Your core temperature is 37 degrees centigrade, 98.6 uh, Fahrenheit. And the body will attempt to maintain that under any circumstance, whether it's cold or hot. That heat, that thermoregulation of core temperature occurs by dissipation of heat, uh, either centrally or peripherally. Um, it can occur by you radiating the heat out, conduction, something taking the heat out of your system, um, convection, uh, touching something cold, or evaporation. Radiation is blood flow through the skin. Your face gets red. Um, it gets hot and you're, you're losing heat to the atmosphere. One of the most efficient uh, things is, as uh, we heard, heard about, Doug talked about, 
is your expired air. Uh, blood is a very high heat capacity and can, tra can transport large amounts of heat with only slight increases in temperature. So if you can breathe cooler air, um, and the emphasis on, is on cooler, not drier, uh, cooler air, then you can move more of that heat from your system out in that volume of air. You heat the air up, it goes out. Conduction is, is uh, the seat back, bringing uh, areas of the body with a large surface area, such as the head, the palms, or the sole, in contacts with a cooler surface. That also works in reverse. If your feet are on a hot floor pan, you're, they make a great heat absorber, uh, and your feet get hot and burn. How that heat is dissipated most efficiently, however, is evaporation, sweating. And the phenomena of sweat evaporating um, is called sudation. The heat of evaporation that's withdrawn from a system. So if, if you can cause a system to lose heat to the environment, such as uh, the heat that it takes to evaporate sweat, it's going to lower your core temperature. And that's the body's major thermoregulatory path. At ambient temperatures greater than 20 degrees centigrade, 68 degrees Fahrenheit, that's where most of the cooling comes from, is sweating. The problem with sweating is it's dependent on the humidity of the air. There has to be room in the air for the moisture that's coming out of the sweat to go, uh, the evaporative process. And that works fine at a relative humidity of less than 75, less than or equal to 75%. As the temperature and humidity increases, evaporation becomes less efficient to the point that as the humidity reaches 90%, you can't sweat anymore. And you've all, all been out on a very humid day, maybe played golf in a mist, and you're soaked in sweat, and it won't go anywhere, even though it's about to rain, because it's about to rain. So the physiology of sedation, water is about 60% of the human body um, of, of an average male, um, 70 kilogram, 150. 150 pounds, the amount of water that you have to take in just to stay hydrated, to stay even, is about 2.3 liters a day. You lose a liter or so in your urine, you lose another liter or so, and a sensible loss is mostly air humidity that's coming out of your lungs. If you exercise, depending on this, the, how hard you exercise, you lose another 1,000 to 2,000 milliliters, that's one to two liters of water an hour of exercise. So in a in any car, in a two hour race, in a high humidity day, you're gonna lose about two liters of water uh, while you're racing. Okay, so what happens when you dehydrate, when you get hot and you dehydrate? If you lose, if you have a 2% loss, that's just three pints, three pounds of, three pounds of water, pints a pound in the world round. Uh, that results in the early a minimal impairment of thermoregulation with an increased core temperature. You get up to uh, 4.5 pounds, four and a half pints. Now you're risking heat-related illness at the first level, uh, the uh, heat illness. You get up to six pints and you're gonna be at the, the upper level of heat cramps, heat syncope, heat, you start to drift into heat exhaustion. At that 1.5 gallon level, now you're risking heat exhaustion or heat stroke, coma and death. So, What's the role of humidity? Well, it reduces the heat dissipated by sedation. You can't sweat. Uh, it's well known. The old fashioned way was to spin a, a wet bulb thermometer and you took the wet bulb and the dry bulb temperatures and you add them together. If it was over 150, you were at higher risk. Nowadays, you take your app on your phone and your weather app and you look at the feels like temperature on your app and see what it says. Then you go to something called a NOAA table, which is readily available. Just go to noaa.org. And it, it's, that's the National um, Weather Service. And it has a very pretty table. Uh, I don't know if you can see this. Nice bright colors that tell you if you know the temperature and the humidity, or you just use your phone and look at the uh, temperature on the chart that says feels like. It tells you what level you're in and when it starts to be cautious and extremely cautious. The NCAA has actually published that uh, with a scale, you can go online or use your phone app, put in the ambient temperature, uh, feels like, and it'll tell you what you're supposed to do because they had so many deaths in football, especially at the high school and college level, uh, all of which have pretty much gone away with following that. All right, so 
now what's the so what's the problem? Well, the problem is you've got a fire suit that's supposed to keep you from um, a retard the length of time that it takes for you to get burned. The first one actually was made in 65 here in Indianapolis from DuPont Nomax by J.B. Hinchman and Company, which is still around um, here. So what's the function of a fire suit? Well, obviously it's to protect you from a fire. Uh, and how it does that it is it has a thermal resistance. It causes uh, temperature not to be transmitted through to you. So now you're in a dilemma. Do you want to be comfortable like the young lady driving this simulator, or do you want to be bound up in all of this garb here on the, on the right? So you have to make some choices. Fire suit is thermally protective by virtue of the material it's made from, the density, the fiber size, the way it's woven, how many layers, uh, how the fabric's been treated. And on the comfort side, it's first of all, how does it feel? I mean, is it comfortable, uh, soft, so on and so forth? And there's a how permeable the air is it, which is really important. You simply pick the material up, stretch it out, put it in front of your mouth, and try and blow through it in both directions. If you can blow right through it, it's probably a good product. Um, it has other measures of how the water vapor gets out and what the comfort index is, how it feels again. Is it stiff? Is it abrasive? Um, what do you want? It has to be thermally protective, and that is spelled out chapter and verse and lots of different standards. But the bottom line is the, the thermal protective property of the performance of the suit is a number. If you take 50% of that uh, in front of a butane burner, it's the time it takes to get to a second degree burn through your fire suit. Um, it also is somewhat variable with the amount of oxygen in the suit. But when you see that TPP number, take half of it, and that's how many seconds you have till you get burned. It also has an SFI grade, um, which is also the TP, uh, related to the TPP rating, but your suit will have a number on it, like three, the fire suit says 3.2A slash number. Most of them are five. If you take five and double it, that gives you 10 seconds in a fuel fire until you have a second degree burn. So if you think that your fire suit is going to let you sit in the car and chat on the radio while it's burning, think again. Um, you, you have comfort parameters that you want to choose in the suit. And like this one, um, in the position that it's in, trust me, there's no resistance to more um, water vapor uh, evaporating off the young lady's chest. It's breathable and comfortable. The microenvironment is what exists at the skin level. It's what your skin sees. That's under the suit. So your skin temperature and the microhumidity, the sweat sitting on your skin is different than what's going on outside the suit. And the idea is to transmit that moisture, evaporate it and pass it out of the suit into the environment. And it takes heat from your system and cools your body. So your core temperature goes down. The identifiable optimum material is breathable, first of all, what we said, you hold it up and you blow through it. It has a very low evaporative resistance, so moisture will pass through it easily. And you want it to have as high a thermal resistance as you can get, at least in a race car 3.2A level five. And uh, the drag racers were even higher, um, a much stiffer suit because of the way they, they don't have to turn much. Um, so the most desirable fire suit has the best thermal protection, the best comfort parameters, and the, a freedom of movement that allows flexibility. Uh, it doesn't impede egress from the vehicle. So how do you know that? Well, the, he's referred to it, and, and uh, it's been referred to that there was actually some testing done. And if you look at fire suit A and fire suit B at um, different levels, this is how long it takes when performing work at 50 watts uh, to raise your core temperature a degree. And you can see that one is considerably better than the other. Uh, the other part of this is, is the different ratings for the suit at different temperatures and humidity. It also tells you um, how long it takes before you reach the level that causes uh, heat, heat uh, stress. So at 40 degrees centigrade, 60% relative humidity, in, in the suit A, you'll get to that level in 46 minutes, you get 56 minutes in suit B. At the highest level, 60 degrees centigrade and 60 degrees uh, um, relative, 60% relative humidity, you get 
30 minutes in suit A, 38 minutes in suit B. So it's 28% better, longer. Um, we talked about airflow in the Stan 21 helmet. The reason that air works inside your helmet is twofold. One is that you, it evaporates the sweat. I mean, everybody's had a hat on playing a sport or been outside and your hair is drenched or you've taken your, your helmet off and your, your hair is absolutely soaked. Um, what air passing through the helmet does is it evaporates that sweat and takes temperature out of the system. And it works also by convection, um, passing cooler air over your, your scalp. Because if you've ever cut your head, it bleeds like crazy because it's one big, huge plexus of veins. Well, the, the materials that Stan 21 has, has um, developed into their suits and the Air Force helmet, which is something we're working with now in the Indy cars because of the um, fact that there's no airflow through the car. It's difficult to get airflow through the car. Um, and the interaction with the suits is, is important to understand. And one of the things that's important and it's very hard to explain to people, the weave and the airspace that that weave defines uh, talks about how much air is trapped in the suit. And the more air that's trapped in the suit, the better because you transmit vapor, water vapor through the air. So there has to be air in the fabric and the more layers of air, uh, the better also for the thermal resistance because the heat from the fire has to go through all those la layers of air to get to you. So it's not only cooling, but it also is, is more protective. The suit may feel like it's heavier than a very lightweight, um, not so well-made suit, but it's not, it's safer. The other thing that I just want to bring out that's come up over and over again is that I can't tell you how many times over the years I've seen somebody wearing a cotton t-shirt that has um, letters across the front of it that have been heat pressed on there. Um, the Army got over that a long time ago because they had a whole lot of people that were in a firefight and fire that have Army permanently tattooed across the front of their chest. So they got rid of those things. A long sleeve well-made fire retardant uh, garment that is air transmissible like we talked about is actually cooler than a wet cotton t-shirt underneath your fire suit. Plus the fact that the t-shirt doesn't cover your arms which is usually where you get burned first. So I can't emphasize enough the benefits of wearing the proper long underwear under your fire suit. It not only keeps you cooler, but it doubles the burn time. Those burn times that I showed you are for the fire suit without underwear. They're just for the garment. You put the underwear on underneath it and it doubles the length of time that it takes to get a second degree burn. So that's my message for today. Go get a nice pair of underwear. Your mother should have told you to do that a long time ago anyway. And that's all I've really got to say. That is a... Uh, um... That's actually extremely fascinating. And I was, I was thinking about the underwear question as well, like what it does, if it just compounds or if it, uh, you know, is fractional, but um, that, that's fascinating. And I'm sure for a lot of people, good advice. Um, I, I do want to, you know, get to a couple of questions we've had in the chat here. Um, one of them asked basically drag racers, what material names should uh, we be looking for in current top level driver suits? And are we necessarily looking for material names? I know you mentioned Nomex and another one, um, or are we just more concerned with an SFI rating and then find what material works best for you? What, what would you recommend? The, the SFI rating is probably the, the for what you're going to be able to buy here uh, regularly, especially the drag racers, is that they, they have a much higher um, SFI rating that, that the slash number, the TPP, and it's mandated by NHRA, but I don't remember. I think it, it may be a SFI highest. 20. Okay. SFI 20. Okay, thanks. Okay. And, and uh, yeah, they have a heavier suit. And that's why a lot of them wear the jacket and the pants, so they don't have to run around in the jacket all day. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's different. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, and that was fascinating. Uh, and I know a lot of people, even some uh, comments in the chat just about um, how interesting this is. And, and, you know, when it talks about when you talk about heat, but 
I don't know that a lot of people talk about comfort. I think a lot of people look at it and I'm glad, you know, you talked about the SFI rating and all of that because people may say, oh, I've got my fireproof suit on. Well, it's not fireproof. Like you no. said, fire retardant and uh, some misconceptions there. What about other things like we see helmets with, you know, socks on them and, and you know, balaclavas and all of the other things that go along besides just the suit? All right. Well, the, the early cooling, anything you can do to your head, the cool caps, so on and so forth. If you've got room to do that, and especially now with the waterless cooling systems that don't have to circulate a fluid, um, some of those are, are smaller, lighter, um, more beneficial. The um, coolants that are the electrical cooling systems that do have a fluid, uh, fluid circulating, those are good as well. Uh, there is a thing to understand about the the, the cool shirts and so on and so forth. There are lots of different ones, but the material that the tubes are in needs to meet the SFI standard for the long underwear. So if we have somebody show up with, with some new, something they wanna wear because it's gonna cool them off, it has to go over their fire suit uh, underwear, not under it. Or it has to have one of the, there are SFI, there's, there's several manufacturers that make them that actually have the fire suit material, um, undershirt material that's on both sides of the tubing. So it's, it's against your skin as well as that. It makes it a little bit less efficient, but it beats having it burned to your skin. Um, the soles of your feet really uh, in a cabin car, as, as Doug pointed out, that floorboard can get really hot. And if it's a front engine car, the transmission tunnel um, gets hot and the combination of actually being able to touch it, that's, that's uh, conduction, so it's gonna heat you up. And the floorboard, we talk about palms of your hands and feet, those on the floorboard, on a hot floorboard, you might as well just, that's literally putting your feet in the fire. So anything you can do to insulate the floorboard so that it doesn't get as hot, um, whether it's heat off the track or heat from the engine will be to your benefit. That's fascinating. Uh, Don, let me turn it over to you for just a minute. I know we've, uh, you know, learned a whole lot of stuff from, you know, both Doug and Terry and Eve. And um, I, this has just really been a fascinating, um, you know, we're not quite to our hour yet, but it's just incredible. Some of the things that we've been talking about here today. Yes. And, and thank you guys for doing that. Um, one thing I should mention is uh, this last week, Terry Trammell was, uh, reward, was awarded the Lewis Switzer Award, which is a uh, um, presented by um, Borg Warner. I remember in high school, we, we knew about the Borg Warner giant trophy with the driver's heads on it. Every year they added a new little sculpted head. But they also, and I remember back then, would have an award for engineering excellence for uh, making cars go faster, but uh, primarily an engineering innovation. But this year they gave it to uh, Terry Trammell. And you can see why after the many years he spent there uh, hands-on level and also thinking about these things and doing research and Terry actually does things um, he's in this house now but in his garage yeah. he's uh, <laughs> I burned a few suits in the garage and so on burned. so forth yeah <laughs> the fire uh, hasn't uh, shut him down but uh, this is he, he's so dedicated to this so he's well deserving certainly of that that award and I think uh, just to close here what are some simple things if uh, the driver out there watching today uh, is not racing at Le Mans, not racing the Indy 500, it's a hot Saturday night in, uh, in Georgia, it's racing a stock car. Um, what are some simple things, uh, I'll ask Terry and, and Doug too, simple things, I've heard hydration and I've heard underwear. Can you yeah, well, um, elaborate more on that please? Let's talk a little bit about hydration. You have to start two or three days before the event. And, and you wanna increase your water intake progressively so that you're basically going to the bathroom about every two hours and your urine's crystal clear. Uh, if it's not, drink more water. You can't do that the morning of the race. It, your body won't trigger that quickly. You, you wanna build up your uh, reservoir, so to speak. And it takes a couple of days of acclimatization to that. Uh, the other thing is if you're, you know you're going to race in a hot summer days, if you're an uh, ARCA racer or Silver Crown or whatever, you have to exercise in the heat. 
because, and really I, we tell our drivers that, that are regularly in the gym, take your fire suit, your underwear, your shoes and your helmet and get on the exercise bike and ride it for two hours and see how you do because that's what you're gonna do in a race car only to a much greater extent because of the muscular uh, work and heat. So you have to train the way you're going to perform. And if you, that, that's really the simplest thing you can do. And if, if you're you know, a guy that's working eight hours in overtime and you're gonna race on the weekend, when you get home at night, spend a half an hour doing calisthenics and exercise in what you're gonna wear in the race car. Um, and get used to it and hydrate. Uh, Doug, would you like to add anything to just the, the Saturday night, the weekend racer? I, I think if the thing that, that we really haven't talked about much here today, and, and, and this subject is, is very germane, is that more so today than ever before, our drivers personally get involved in the science of heat stress and health and fitness. And, uh, uh, they have a communication system among themselves where they will find new techniques, new devices, new methodology. Uh, they do a tremendous amount of research themselves in, uh, in, in the science of, of, of fitness and, and, and heat stress. And I, that they are, they are kind of a self-regulating body. Uh, all the things that Terry has talked about, they are aware of. Uh, it goes right into their diet. Um, it's a, it's a much different world than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, the drivers themselves have become little mini scientists and, uh, uh I, I encourage that and I encourage all that data sharing and, uh, and we share that data with, uh, with our partner stay in 21 as well. Uh, the information flows forwards and backwards. Um, that's the beauty of a company like stand 21 is that they are there. They are at the event. Uh, they are open, uh, to dialogue. Uh, and they are quick responders, uh, whether it be shoes, whether it be helmets, whether it be gloves, underwear. Uh, if the drivers report back that they think there's an area that can be improved, Eve's group goes to work on that. And literally by the next race, we have something else for them to try. Those are the things that are responsible for advancements. When you have, when you have a team that's willing to participate in a manufacturer who's willing to work with them, uh, great things can be achieved. And I think Stan 21 uh, really stands at the top of the pack for doing that. Um, we've been with them for well over 20 years and I have no interest in going anyplace else. Wow, very well said. And, Merci uh, beaucoup. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but, you know, you have to understand now, around the world is about 3 million people who race. 98% of uh, Saturday night uh, player. That, that's club. And these people, they don't have to wear synthetics. They don't have to wear, you know, they just have to think very simple. Normally, a, a racing, amateur racing is more dangerous than professional racing because that amateur, amateur, you know, and they have to, to be ready to be, to be well uh, equipped because it's the best way to, to escape. But really big, big, big thing now, the big, uh, big thing in the world is amateur racing. It can be historic, can be, you can have historic in GT racing, you have historic in midget, you have historic in drag racing, we have historic off-road. Look at the next Paris-Dakar, is already 60 uh, historic cars for the next race. <laughs> so, that's incredible. Historic and amateur, Porsche GT or or old car, or you know, that's a big development in a in a world. And we have to take care of these all these people because these people they are 40, 50, 60 years old, and they start to race because they want to have fun. They want to come back at home, see their, their kids or, or or wife or and back to back to the business to make more money to for the next race. That's excellent. Uh Francisque, I see you pop back up, turn it back oh. over to you, sir. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sad we have to end. <laughs> I wish we have, you know, we could continue for an hour or so, but we try to run those webinars for about an hour. Uh, so uh, a, a very, very uh, special thank you to the four of you. Uh, what a great session it was. Uh, the session has been recorded. It will be posted later on the ePortrait platform along with the other 100 and plus webinars that we have produced so far. 
We will be back next Wednesday at nine o'clock Pacific for a double feature. We're going to be talking metal uh, treatment and metal uh, uh, surfacing. And uh, we're going to also be talking about Pikes Peak with our good friends from Racer. So we're going to have a double feature, one on surface treatment and surface finishing and the other one uh, inside Pikes Peaks. So again, thank you very much for being with us today. We pushed uh, Eve's product back on the homepage of ePartrade. So go on ePartrade, you'll see Stan21's product, login, as Judy mentioned many, many times, those webinars are once a week, but the platform is open 24-7, 365 for the industry to connect and engage. And next week, we're celebrating our third year anniversary. Right, Judy? Yep. Yeah. Three years. Hard <laughs> so hard to believe. Yeah, as well, almost, uh, you know, longer than that, I went to see Eve and I said, Eve, I have an ID. And, uh, you know, I, I, three people I went to see and Judy went to see other uh, people. And the three people were Eve Morizo, Wilfred Ibach, and uh, Steve Lewis. And I said, I've got an ID. And Eve said, within one second, we're in. And I was uh, over three years ago, and that's why we're here. So thank you very much, everyone. And thank you, Eve. We'll see yeah, you happy birthday. next week. Yeah, see thank you. And we'll see you all at Long Beach, hopefully. Absolutely. Thank you. I hope to see you, sure. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Ciao. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.